Hello and welcome to this edition of TBT's podcast. I'm Dan Friel. On this episode, I'll be speaking with Pops Mensa Bonsu of City of Gods and Jesse Leeds, TBT's recruiting coordinator. Pops Mensa Bonsu recently retired from an illustrious professional career, which included seasons in the NBA, playing in some of the top leagues in Europe, and representing Great Britain in the 2012 London Olympics, which were played just minutes from his childhood home. After speaking with Pops, we'll check in with Jesse and get some inside scoop on what he's hearing about potential alumni teams that could be entering TBT's South region in 2016. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to subscribe on iTunes. Just search The Basketball Tournament. And if you really enjoy the podcast, please give us a good rating. Thanks. Hey, Pops. Yeah. How are you? I'm great. Hey, so where are we talking to you from today? Uh, in my house in, in Fort Washington, Maryland. So you have been kind of traveling all around the world in the last decade or so since you left um, George Washington. Is it nice to finally be back in a place where you know you're going to be for you know more than eight to ten months at a time? Yeah, definitely. Can the grind and the the mental and physical toll it can take on you just being away for ten months. And yeah, I'm from London, so it's, it's I'm home away from home away from home. <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> I kind of wanted to talk about that with you because you know there's not a lot of basketball players playing at a, certainly at the NBA or near NBA level from the UK, and uh-huh. I was always curious about that and why you think that might be. I mean, London and certainly the UK in general are big enough that you would think they could support sort of a higher level caliber player than than what we currently see, right? Well, London or Great Britain, I would say, uh, is. Uh, is behind in the world of basketball. It's behind because we, it's just, it's not a sport that's recognized highly there. And it's just something that uh, I tried and I felt like I had a social responsibility to, to try and raise awareness as far as British basketball is concerned. And I couldn't, and it was difficult because, you know, anybody knows anything about England or Great Britain, soccer is the number one sport. Is that frustrating sort of as a basketball player, though, to know how much attention is given to soccer, or as they call it, football, on a 12-month-a-year basis? It can be frustrating at times because I can give you a very interesting stat. As of 2011, I'm not sure what it is to this day now, as of 2011, basketball is the number one played team sport amongst ethnic minorities in Great Britain. And if you walk down the street anywhere in Great Britain, like New York City or any other major city in the U.S., what are you going to see? Ethnic minorities. Mm -hmm. See, you know, Great Britain is a diverse country. There's all walks of life. There are all different types of cultures and different people from different countries who migrated there. And to know that statistic is, is alarming because it's probably... One of the least funded sports in all of British um, British sports, and it's difficult to uh, to to see that. One of the things that I read was that after the Olympics in London, which was in 2012, uh, you were kind of almost contemplating retiring at that point, yeah, uh, because of uh, frustration, I think, with injuries. But it also sounded like maybe you were a little frustrated with. Uh, I don't know if it was a missed opportunity, but you felt like maybe that was the opportunity for basketball to really advance. Uh, in Great Britain, you hit it right on the head, uh, Dan. It was I was frustrated that uh, I was having you know probably the best year of my life uh, on the court, 
And that, that type of opportunity, it was so many things that were were present at that time that could that could have happened. I'm in the Olympics, ten minutes away from where I grew up. Being in the Olympics is a is a great achievement in itself. But being in the Olympics in your hometown is monumentous. Being um, and then the social responsibility and the opportunity to to raise awareness of this sport was I felt like that was it was our time. It was our time to to grab it, to grab that attention, grab that notoriety, and grab that help that next generation make that step into 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 basketball prominence. I feel we have this. The country is uh, I feel like wealthy enough. The country is is big enough. It has we can provide the resources to do so. And I just felt like if we just had a little more of a push and we were a little more successful. At that moment in time, we would have um, it would have been great for British basketball. I was just really hurt that we, as a unit, fell short, and I took a lot of responsibility for that. One of the things that is interesting to me just about international basketball is that so many of the clubs are associated with the more high-profile soccer teams. So, yes. if you look at some of the teams you've played for, uh, Galatasaray certainly that's a Champions League caliber soccer team. Uh, Seska Moscow is a championship caliber soccer team. Yep. Why do you think that the clubs in the UK, uh, I'm sorry, specifically in the Premier League, haven't adopted that same model? I mean, it would seem that there's a great business opportunity there for them, huh? It's funny you say that. I, I wrote up, I wouldn't say a business plan, I would say a proposal. I was the ambassador for the EuroLeague Final Four uh, when it was in London. They were trying to actually help. Uh, raise uh, awareness and help the notoriety of basketball in London and they made me the ambassador for it and I wrote them a proposal on how we should try to incorporate these English Premier League teams to uh, to fund teams obviously they have the resources to do so and in Spain, Italy, France, uh, Russia, Greece the soccer teams have a basketball um, section to have a basketball side and they um, I feel like it would be huge to have a Tottenham Hotspur soccer basketball team a, a Manchester United basketball team it would it would be so much easier for the sport of basketball if we had the back end the financial the the, the back end as far as the fans are concerned um, just the resources would be would have been huge to have that back end from the soccer teams and it, it was it was it was an uphill battle and we was we wasn't able to uh, to get that because it's it's something that I feel would be ten years in the making. It's not something that was going to happen overnight, and I wish it could have. I could have achieved or accomplished it, you know, during my playing career. But this type of thing is going to take years of um, hard work to um, to to accomplish. I felt like the time was now because of some of the athletes, some of the talent that British basketball had. You know, at one point we had about four or five NBA players on our national team. And not too many teams across Europe can really say that. Right. So, go ahead. I was going to say, you, you, you've taken, it's clear when you talk to you that you've taken a leadership role when it comes to uh, certainly great uh, Britain's basketball team, but 
you've also kind of done that now that you've stepped away from the game. I think I read a couple of weeks ago it was that you officially announced your retirement. I think some of us might have known that mm-hmm. a little bit earlier, but it was interesting that you've now transitioned into a role with the NBA Players Association. And uh, is this something, this sort of leadership element, something that you know you take to heart? And is it something that you uh, are consciously doing, or is it just sort of naturally in your in your background? I think it's naturally in my background. Uh, I was taught at a young age to, or maybe it was innate, I'm not sure, to just be a leader in any way, shape or form, whether I was in a group project in class, um, you know, just playing basketball, you know, off the court, you know, I've been a captain of many different teams. I, I always saw my, I was captain of the, of the TBT team. They, I took that as a, uh, I took that on and wanted to be a leader because I felt like had a lot of players who were, you know, high level players at one point. And for them to ask me to be the captain, I felt like was humbling. It was a big honor. And I, I, I took it willingly because I've always saw my seen myself as a leader. And I just always wanted to lead from the front. I always wanted to lead by example. I'm a vocal leader and I'm an emotional leader too. And I always feel like I can, with my psychology background, I always feel like I can get across to players in many ways, shape, or form. Yeah, you majored in that at George Washington, right? I sure did, yeah. Which so, is why me being able to uh, fall into this, have this job fall into my lap, which will have a um, some sort of, it's gonna, it's gonna, you know, need some psychology in in it at some point in time. It's gonna have some psychology in it at some point in time, and. You know, having that background and being able to use it in in my current job is is a great it's a great opportunity. Was that background in psychology something that you used in your playing career as a captain of a team, where you would know, I guess, from the learning that you had done, how to approach certain situations of certain players? Yeah, I would say player wise. You know, I think when I'm on the court, I'm very emotional. I'm a very uh, intense player, but when it came to um, communicating with my teammates, I definitely used it. Every, there's so many different egos, so many different personalities that are that players possess, and you got to know how to approach them to get through to them. And I felt like having that psychology background and my personality put together, I was I'm able to get through to to players in many different ways. Tell me a little bit about the experience with TBT and sort of what you were able to do. I mean, you guys made the semifinals. Team City of Gods uh, was a very successful team, and I think a lot of people would say that. Uh, were upset in the semifinals um, by overseas elite. And I'm curious what your feelings were in the event. You've had a couple uh, months now to reflect on it, uh, what your thoughts were. First of all, I have to tip my hat to the guys at Team City, uh, I mean, Team, the overseas elite team. They they played like they wanted it more. You know, they were the better team on the day and they beat us. You know, I, I felt like to an extent we beat ourselves, but they... They they definitely you know were the better team and I'm never I'm never going to take that away from them. They they were hungry, they were motivated, and they played like they wanted a million dollars. And you know I have to really tip my hat. I felt at ease knowing that we lost to the eventual champion. But that experience, I lied to you not Dan, is one of the best experiences I've ever had playing why, basketball. Why, why is that? Because you gotta understand the team we had. I have a personal relationship with literally every single player on that team. You know, I played, um, I was, David Hawkins was my roommate in Turkey. We, we became close. I played against him in college. DeMar Johnson was my roommate in Italy. 
and he was, you know, at one point the number one player in in, in basketball in high school. Uh, Mike Sweetney, we used to work out together. Lafonte Johnson, where he's he's one of my closest friends, and we played uh, college basketball together. Me and James Giss have been rivals for years in at Maryland, in Russia, in Turkey. Uh, who else? Uh, Devin Sweetney, I worked out with him. Hassan Cromer went to George Washington. Phil Goss is from the area. Um, you know, just uh, me and uh, Xavier Silas were with the Wizards together. Uh, Joe Conley, I've known, he, he coached my brother when he first came to this country, and he worked, I've worked out with him uh, sparingly. Um, I have a personal relationship on and off the court with every single one of these guys, and to be able to put that caliber, that type of person, and those types of people and players on one team, it was one of the that's that but it's funny we still have like a group chat that we literally talk every single day and you never would have thought that would have happened putting those different personalities and those different people players together and now we have a bond that was created by being in tbt so it sounds like with the group chat going on you guys are probably coming back next year right with a vengeance <laughs> One thing that's interesting to me about in talking to a lot of the players is that uh, one of the few times that they ever get to really kind of choose who they're going to play with and how they're going to play and who's going to play on which team or whatever is actually in TBT. You know, whether it's AAU ball or college or pros, you don't necessarily get to pick your teammates. And I'm curious, was that something that you guys did consciously? You knew that you needed this type of player, so you got Lasan Chroma, or you knew that you needed... Um, you know, a veteran presence, so he brought in Mike Sweetney. I'm curious about that that element of it. We needed, I felt like we put a perfect team together. To be honest with you, um, Dan, we had different personalities, different guys who possessed different skill sets, different emotions, different sizes and types of players. Like, if we needed to slow the game down and go to a half-court set, we have guys like Mike Sweetney, who we could dump the ball down. Myself, uh, you know, who could, you know, who can play on on the block and play in a half court setting. Uh, if we needed to speed the game up and go small, you know, you could put Demar Johnson or, or David Hawkins at at the four position with me at the five, and you know, make it a run and gun game. If we were doing that run and gun game, we can go small with Omar Strong, uh, Xavier Silas, and Phil Goss at the one, two, and three, who can get out and push the ball and, you know, get to shooting threes. And if we if we wanted to make a great defensive, you know, big lineup, we could have David Hawkins, you know, DeMar Johnson, James Giss, myself, and Hamdi Njai in there where everybody's 6'4 and above. And, you know, it's a great defensive unit out there. And we really felt like whatever teams threw at us, we could respond. And I think once we beat Bayheim's Army, I won't. I don't want to say we relaxed. I want. To, I, th I hate to say that. That's not the case. I really felt like we knew overseas elite were good, but we felt like the, the, how they had gotten to where they were, well, they were fortunate. They were a very good team. Don't get me wrong, but there's a couple of times they only had five or six players when they played their regional final in uh, in uh, in Chicago. They were in Chicago. I'm sorry. They yeah. played that the down south team, the dirty south team. I think. Like they they could have easily lost that game. Yeah, it's amazing how many how close that team came. I mean, even from Travis Bader showing up, you know, five minutes before their first round game, they would have had four. Um, 
you know, so it is. I, I totally get what you're saying, and obviously the game itself was great and against them, and you guys came so close. I'm interested to know as well, though, having retired from sort of the professional club game, are you going to be able to to get it back together in time for TBT 2016? Like I said, that's why I'm I'm training. I'm I'm move. I, I carry myself as a professional basketball player, so playing twice a week. I still play against some pros. I still work out as a pro. So, you know, I guess closer to the time when all those pros come back from their respective seasons, I'm going to be back around them again. And I think I will, like I said, I, I probably take, it's not in my nature, but I probably take more of a backseat to the guys who are still doing it. But, you know, if I still, if I still feel like, uh, you know, I may not be the same player I was, even though I really think I will be or know I will be, uh, I, I can do that. But at the same time, I think, what I possess emotionally and energy-wise, I, I still feel like I'll be able to get back to that level. Pops, we haven't talked about this before, but one thing that I hear from a lot of people is that a lot of times guys retire from basketball for various reasons. You know, from the NBA sometimes is that it's not that you can't play anymore, it's that you can't play 100 games anymore. Or, you know, people retire from overseas because emotionally that's just a very difficult path to take. Do you agree with that? Is that something that, that you think about? I mean, is it hard to get up for six games when you're playing six games over the course of three weekends? Is there a different feeling for that type of a of a play? What was strange when you say that, it wasn't hard. Because I just, I loved everything about what, what the TBT represented. And that, you know, unfortunately I got hurt my senior year when we had our best opportunity to make a run in the NCAA tournament. So a lot of guys use this one and done type situation as that. Like it's it's. it's I think I saw a tweet from or a post maybe from Omar Strong about that. That this was his NCAA tournament, right? He never really got to make it, so he didn't really get a chance to to know that feeling. But this every single game, regardless of who he played, every single second counted. Every moment was was critical. It meant something, and sharing that with those guys was great. And I feel like it was it was that's it's just a, that type of opportunity doesn't come around a lot. Does that change? Does that change the way that first off the way that you approach the game, and secondly, does it change the way the game is played? Yeah, of course it does. Because there's some situations where if it's a league, yeah, you can maybe have a bad game. You can, you can lose a game. You can, you know, not be 100%, may not even have the energy that you may want. TBT, you have a bad day, you're going home. So it's imperative, obviously, to be on your it's best, best form all the time. You have to be your best version of you every game or you will be going home. And unfortunately, we didn't have our best game in one of the most critical times of the season. I would have rather have lost the first game than to have lost in the semifinals. I, I mean, yeah. I say lightly. You're not, people say that, yeah. I say that lightly because the experiences we had, that Bayhams game was, I've played a lot of big games and a lot of exciting games in my life. That's easily one of the best games I've ever been a part of. Just the excitement of it or the tenacity? What was I it? We had so many fans and we, it was just a back and forth. How many, I, I, it was probably 15, 20 lead changes in that game. Mm -hmm. And then the lead never got more than maybe five or six at one point. And it was, I felt like we matched up so well against each other. The talent level was similar. 
you know, the they had NBA players too. We had high, you know, NBA players. They had high level um, players that were in Europe. Um, you know, they had a lot of, you know, had Syracuse legends on that team and it was just a great matchup. Me and Hakeem Warwick have battled against each other since we was in high school and I, literally the day I knew I was going to play that game, I circled, played, you know, on the TBT. I circled that game. I said, <laughs> if we want to win or if we, at some point in time, we're going to run into that Syracuse team for sure. When you, so when you were growing up, uh, with basketball not being the primary sport in London, was there a point where you picked up the game and said, I want to do this? Or how did that, how did you get to that point where you're so emotionally invested in, in the sport? I thought I was going to go to the Olympics to be, or represent my country, uh, doing a high jump. Interesting. I, yeah. When I came over here, I was a few weeks away from representing England in in track and field. This is when you were a sophomore in high school? Sophomore high school. Okay. Yeah. How tall were you at that point? Uh, probably 6'5". Which is like the ideal height for a high jumper, right? I guess skinny 6'5", yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was still coming into my athleticism, so I felt like I was only going to get better. And, you know, basketball was a sport I played. It wasn't my passion at the time. And, like I said, I really thought I was going to go to college to maybe even play both, but more so run track. And it just changed overnight. I kept growing. Uh, my love for the sport game grew. And then once I, once I was a senior in high school, maybe a junior, I realized that this was going to be the path that I was, that was, I was going to take. And it was going to determine the rest of my life. And that's what it was. That's when I knew basketball was going to be the sport for me. So was it almost purely a matter of continuing to grow at maybe a level you didn't expect? Or was it, did you actually have sort of the foundation for that emotional investment in the game too? I had the foundation for it, but sometimes, and this is relevant to my position now, well, me being where I am now, God's plans for you are not really what you have planned for yourself. I wanted to run track and go to the Olympics to be a high jumper. Uh, you know, I obviously would have loved to have been in the NBA, but that moment in time, I thought that's that was going to be my path. Kept growing. Uh, it wasn't uh, when I, tra- I transferred high schools to a school in closer to Philly in southern New Jersey, and it wasn't really set up for me to still do the high jump. So that's when you know my high jump career kind of ended, and the AAU circuit helped me get notoriety as far as basketball is concerned. And that's when I realized, you know, this is going to be the sport for me. Were your parents over here with you at that time? Nope. I feel I've been by myself since I was 14. So you come over here at 14, 15 years old. Without, had you been to the United States before? I know your brother played at Washington State. I visited the United States, but that was it. So you come over here at 14, 15, don't have any parents. Is it a boarding school that you were at? Initially, it was a boarding school, but then when I transferred to my, my, the next high school, I stayed with the host family. So how did that work? with the host family and sort of the decisions that you have to make when you're deciding what to do as a highly recruited basketball player? How does it work? Um, I want to say it's a situation where your back is against the wall to an extent. You, you know, I, I didn't grow up, I grew up a little less fortunate. My parents did a great job of providing for us, but you know, we didn't have, you know, everything like some others would, but they instilled these 
these qualities and these morals and ethics and the work, um, the determination and drive that they taught us at a young age helped me at that moment in time to know this is succeed or fail. And that's it. Failure was not an option for me. But, I mean, that's just amazing, though. When you're 14 years old, most American kids are, I don't know, like just figuring out what they want to do in terms of where they want to go to school or what movie they're going to see. And here you are at this point moving to a new country, you know, pursuing a new opportunity. Um, I don't know. Did you like did you have counsel with your parents? Were they guiding you through this? I mean, it must have been almost literally foreign to them, right? Um. I had to grow up very, very fast. I had to become a man at a young age because I didn't, I couldn't put that burden on my parents to um, have to help me financially. They couldn't really do it at that moment in time. So I had, I told myself, look, you're going to have to, you cannot, you cannot fail. Your parents can't help you. You know, you can't really depend too much financially on your on your host family, they're already doing enough by putting a roof over your head. So I didn't want to burden them in that way. And I've already got a 16, 17 year old growing kid in their house. That's probably eating them out of house and home. So I knew putting myself in a position where I could take care of myself as far as just getting to college was concerned was something that I had to be done. And so I was, that's what that's what motivated me. That's what kept me going. And then when I got to college, it was now I have to provide for my family. I want to be a leader. I'm one of the youngest. I'm the second youngest of five, and I always saw myself as a leader in my family. I always saw myself as somebody that had to take care of my family, and that's what it was. So I just told myself, you have to make it. You so did you see? So you saw that early? I mean. When was that? Like when you got to George Washington, that you knew that hey, I have an opportunity here to maybe play professional basketball and do some things with this. Whether it was playing professional basketball or getting my degree and just being successfully successful in in any way, shape, or form, I was like, I'm going to do it. I didn't. I didn't. I was read that I would tell people my goals or what I wanted to accomplish. So I kept a lot of that stuff to myself and just buckled down and, you know, did my work and, you know, worked in the gym and just, you know, tried to become as successful as possible regardless. Why did you keep those goals to yourself? Some Sometimes people would laugh. Sometimes people will want to break, break, uh, um, sometimes when you set lofty goals, a lot of people may want to bring you down. They may, you know, laugh at your goals and say it's not possible. I just, you know, I felt like to you're already going to have enough bumps and obstacles and hurdles in your in your way you know why bring other um other things that could help you slow your um progression down so normally you know when i when my sophomore year when i told myself i was gonna make sure i was good enough to enter the draft by the time i was a junior i didn't tell anybody i just let my actions do the speaking do you feel like you accomplished the goals that you had set out even to yourself? Barring getting drafted my senior year, my junior year, I was, you know, I, I could have left school early. I entered the draft and I was, you know, told that I was going to get drafted. But back then you didn't leave school to be a second round draft pick. So I came back to school, had a great senior year, uh, didn't get drafted for whatever reasons. 
And I still made it to the NBA, so I accomplished that goal. And I finally had gotten to the point where I, I made it and helped. I was able to help my family in a way that you know I've never, I'd never been able to do before. So it wasn't the easiest path to make it to the NBA. You had um, the 06-07 season mainly in the D League, and then you went over to Italy after that, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I was I was under contract with the Mavericks, and then I was assigned to the D League, so I was with them on and off then uh went to italy came back got hurt actually i went to italy for a year then went to um spain when i played with ricky rubio and then hurt my shoulder and then so i went back to the d league and had uh an amazing two weeks when I, then i signed with uh the the toronto raptors and after that that's when i probably had my best stint in the nba what is that like, the transition from playing in Italy, Spain, back into the NBA? Because uh, I have this mental image that it's sort of like that moment in The Wizard of Oz where <laughs> everything goes from black and white into color. You would think so. It's a different game. Everybody would say, how is it a different game if it's still basketball? It's officiated differently. They have a different mindset about it. Uh, the players are different. Like, you need to... I'm a, I've always been an athlete, so... You know, I would have to, whereas in the NBA, I could use my athleticism a little bit more. In Europe, you have to have a certain skill set to an extent for them to, for you to, you know, succeed. And I was always just able to adapt. I knew I, I rebounded at a high level and I knew that wherever I played, I could always do that. I could always rely on that. And... That's just what it was for me. And every time I had to, I went back and forth so many times that it was just innate. It was innate for me to adapt. And uh, it's a different game, but, you know, it's, it's still basketball. And I still enjoyed every second of it. And it was uh, it was easy for me. So then after the, the Raptors, you went to the Rockets for a little while, back to the Raptors, and then uh, over to Russia. Yes. How was that? Ooh, I went to Russia in January, which was ooh, <laughs> it's brutal. <laughs> brutal is, is, uh, is to say the least. Uh, it was six feet of snow. It was freezing. Like uh, it, it was tough. It was, I was at that time we was, may have been the best team in Europe, but it was tough for me to um, experience it as far as in that way because it was so brutal. But it was a, a situation where it was as closer to the NBA as I've ever been, talent-wise, uh, you know, administrative, you know, as far as the how they ran things. You know, we had a private plane. We had an NBA-style locker room. We They had a major Nike contract that, you know, that was unheard of in Europe. And that was, um, it was an experience, definitely an experience. And, and we went to the EuroLeague Final Four, too. Which are the places that you've played outside the NBA or I guess even including the NBA, which of the places you've played do you think the fans were the most passionate about what you guys were doing on the court? Toronto, Turkey, and Greece. Do you think Toronto gets a bad rap in terms of um, their level of fandom? It doesn't. Nobody ever thinks of them as having the most passionate fans in the NBA. It's just a market. It's a small market, so they don't know. But when I was there, we... We was like, a, you know, uh, two two positions away from making the playoffs, and we had sold out every single game. They just appreciated if you came to the game and played hard. It's a hockey uh, town, so 
that that's what you know. It's kind of hard to say that with the Blue Jays doing what they're doing now, but yeah, it's a hockey town, and they uh, appreciate that that hard work that you bring to the game, which is why I was had success there. They appreciated what I brought to the table, and it does get a bad rap because it's a small market. But I always tell people when Chris Bosh was there, he was averaging close to about twenty five and ten rebounds, twenty five points and ten rebounds. Obviously, he was all star, one of you know all NBA, but he was he was a relative unknown in the NBA, in the world of the NBA, as far as like fans are concerned. He goes to Miami, probably his point total drops to 17, 16, 17 points, probably goes down to seven, eight rebounds. He's a superstar. Right, right. Just and and that's market. just location. Yeah. It's lo- that's what happens, it's location. He led his team to playoffs. He averaged double doubles. He did this, that, and the third one of the best plays in the league. But the market—it's just what happens when it's a different market, and that's just how things go. What's the What's the situation like in Turkey? Because I, I spoke with Eric McCollum a couple of weeks ago, and he's with Galatasaray. Yeah, that sounds. I've seen videos where they're shooting off fireworks and flares and everything yeah. in the stands. I mean, that just looks and sounds insane. Was that crazy to play in? Uh, it's one of the I wouldn't say it's hard to say it's one of the best experiences I've had, but it's it's an experience that is I think molds you as a person and player and something that you have and live with for the rest of your life. I've been in situations where I didn't think we would make it out alive. <laughs> what what happened? I mean, was it you, know, you getting attacked on the bus or like what was going on? I know Eric is going to run into this when they play one of the teams. We play one of our rival teams and. It was so bad, they wouldn't even let us warm up before the game. We just had to come on the court and play. They was throwing. They was firing batteries at us. They was heating up coins to throw them, spitting on coins, spit in itself. Uh, They have these, like, there's a fruit over there. It's like a small apple. Mm -hmm. They would get those and throw them. Literally anything you can think of from men, women, and children, this was getting hurled at us. They was, they was calling us all types of names, and it's a very, when you, it's hostile environment, to say the least. Unbelievable. Hostile, if there was more of a, like, uh, if there was another word to determine it, then I would use it. I think hostile doesn't even, doesn't even do it justice. Is that fun? I mean, is there an element of that that's fun to play in, or is it? Yeah, I loved it. Really? I loved it. Barring getting hit with anything, I loved it. Going into a, into a, a team's arena where, and and in, and in Turkey and Greece, you're not allowed to have away fans. So it's only home fans because of how volatile the situation can be and how violent it could get. Mm-hmm. People have died. Right. People have died, you know, with fan interaction. So they don't allow away fans to come to the game. And, so, and in soccer, I know that they have to separate them. You know, in the big and so- massive arenas, they're, they're separating them off and separate sections right exactly so um you have let's just say an arena or a stadium that um or a gym that holds eight thousand people eight thousand people screaming against you eight thousand people throwing stuff at you spitting at you you know it's in an environment where the odds are stacked against you to win and you go in there and win first of all it doesn't there's a good chance that you uh, there's a good chance that you don't uh, that you don't come out of there unscathed. 
You know, there's times they would surround the bus. They would throw stuff at the bus. They would try to pick the bus up. They would not let the bus leave for a couple hours so that you'd miss your flight out. It is, um, it's the situation can be volatile and can be dangerous like that. But the, the excitement you get from going into one of those situations and winning is unparalleled. There's, there's nothing else you can really equate. There's nothing else that you can equate it to. It's, it's great. There might be something innate in that name that you have uh, as well that deals with sort of volatile situations quickly. Because I was reading something about where the Mensa Bonsa name comes from. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, definitely. Um, my family is from Ghana and West Africa. And they, you know, my name actually has, you know, has a story and a background to it. And it holds a lot of, um, it's got a lot of history and a lot of pride in it. One of my dad's ancestors many, many years ago, somehow, way, shape, or form, was able to kill a whale. So my name doesn't... It's amazing. To, to this day, people, when they always ask me, it's like, does your name mean whale killer? And it doesn't essentially or exactly mean whale killer. It means... Mensa, Bansu mean, Mensa means third son, and Bansu means whale. And my uh, ancestor, who was a third son somehow killed the whale and so they put third son and whale together and we got that name and and we I inherited that name because my one of my dad's ancestors was able to kill a whale um many many years ago and that's that's just the background of my name and in college they just ran with it and they was like you know they called me the whale killer people still call me the whale killer to this day but uh you yeah, know, great name great name for a poker player yeah, yeah it was pretty cool yeah. but Obviously, my dad called me one day. He was like, you have to explain the story the right way. You're not a whale killer, but you know, <laughs> even though that's how we got the name. But, you know, I, was, I had to get the, the true facts and let people know what it was. When you have a name that is distinct, at least in sort of Western society, um, European society, is that something that you take pride in? Or is that yeah. something that you feel like you have to explain and it gets tedious? I wouldn't say it gets tedious. It's, you take pride. And the name is definitely something that I've taken pride in. Where did pops? Where did pops come from? Because Nana, I think, is your given name, right? First name, pops or Papa is my middle name. It's, it's another form of calling me Junior. And mm -hmm. Donna, I was named after my father, so um, it was another way they just called me Junior. It's, it's Papa Yao is my middle name, and my parents. I never actually have heard my parents call me by my first name. They always call me Pops. Have you ever wished that you had something more middle of the road like George? There were times like during the SATs. I wish I didn't have five names. <laughs> but uh, other than that, I could, you know, I, I, I love my name. It's distinct. It uh, it rings bells to an extent, and uh, it's when you hear that name, you know, people is you know immediately think of me. Walking pop meds about so there's not too many people that could walk around saying that. If I had a name like Steve Smith, you know, there's probably a million Steve Smiths in the world, maybe more. <laughs> Right, you know, right. I'm okay with having my name. At times, you know, people would make fun, or people would say, you know, you don't have a regular name, or it's just long. But like I said, it's distinct, and it's uh, it makes me who I am. And your name is something that you take pride in. I think that um, one thing I wanted to talk with you about is uh, the doping ban that you had, and sort of why it is that um, you've decided to challenge that, and the circumstances behind that. Yeah, a lot of people think I'm, I retired because of the doping ban, which is not the case. I retired, it made my retirement easier. But the job opportunity that I had come up, 
I was probably going to have to retire and take this job anyway. This opportunity was not would not come up too often, and it was a position that I was put in where I was going to have to step away from the game and and take this job anyway. It would have made my decision harder, but the doping ban was just like okay, I guess everything happens for a reason, and it's just timing. But uh, the reason why I'm still appealing it, even though I've fully retired and don't intend to come back to professional basketball. It's because of the reputation in my name. I I take pride in my reputation. I take pride in not cheating the game of basketball. I take pride in not cheating the people who believed in me or letting them down. And the fact that this would be hanging over my head, whether I retired or not, is something that I did not want, which is why I'm fighting it tooth and nail. I'm fighting it to the, to the end because I really, I honestly believe that I have done nothing wrong. I didn't. They make it seem like I took a take taking steroids, and you know many a times I've been injured, I've been hurt, and I could have easily have gone that route. Is this something that never would have even crossed my mind? I've ta I've take pride in I base my career and, w and what I've been able to accomplish on on hard work and determination. When I was when my back was against the wall, when I was down and out, all I did was just start from the drawing board and just work hard to get back to the level that I that I that I once was at, and that's to, for them to take that, for them to to uh, minimize my career to that, and to to have some medic something that is essentially a medication of mine. And what is it, just by background? It's Adderall. It's Adderall. Anybody knows anything about Adderall is given to people who have ADHD. And I needed actually to function on a day-to-day -day basis. It's got nothing to do with my basketball. I needed to function on a day-to-day -day basis to, take, to help take care of my daughter, to read a book, to, to, to go to class, to do anything. I need I needed to function. And again, um, that's something you're appealing right now, right? Yes, that's something I'm definitely appealing. And I'm, I should hear, hear back soon from it, but... It's something that yeah, a lot of people, they just hear I failed a, 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 a drug test and they immediately assume I was on some sort of steroid. Right. And anybody that knows me, they see that I'm 250 pounds athletic. They're like, oh, we could easily see that. But I've been that way since I was 16. So, you know, I've never, you know, I've never taken a drug a day in my life in any way, shape or form. Oh, it's kind of, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, and I, and I can attest to that and I'm proud of that and to have them uh, just uh, just to 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 bring me to try and bring me down to that level or to paint that picture it's just it's just wrong and it brought a tear to my eye because I'm like if this if I if I did decide to end and plan or to retire I don't want that to be the deciding people to think that was the deciding factor well it's i mean it's a taint right and i think that what we were just talking about before is how much pride you're taking in yourself and it does seem to me like you're the sort of guy that a doesn't want to cheat himself and b doesn't want to cheat anybody else and you know to have that allegation come up on something that as i understand it, you were prescribed right yes i was prescribed and that's the big thing i wasn't something that somebody just gave to me it was given. It was prescribed to me by a doctor. I had a doctor's note, a prescription, and I went through the test to get it. So you know, I obviously went through the proper protocol to do so. Now, you did mention that part of your decision to retire actually was to take a job uh, with the NBA Players Association. I was kind of interested to find out what you're doing. Uh, I'm a region. I'm a uh, regional rep. 
and I'll be a liaison to the international players. I'm interested in the, in the second part of that. What do, what do you think you'll be doing with that? Um, well, being born and raised in London, being going to high school and university in the United States and playing in the NBA and playing half of my career in 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 Europe, I have a unique perspective on life and basketball. And I, I feel like I possess something that not too many players can 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 or do have, I'm sorry. And in this position of being a regional rep where I work closely to and for the players, especially with the international side of things, I can relate to them. I know where a guy who's coming from Turkey, who's in a you know a largely based Muslim background, how what it's like to move to the United States. And I'm not Muslim; I'm just giving you an example. Mm-hmm. A kid who's coming from Turkey that is Muslim, I can understand what he's going to have to go through coming to a situation where he's in the NBA and he has to get used to the culture, the culture and the lifestyle on and off the court. I feel like I possess what it takes to help him with that. And so your role is almost going to be to sort of counsel guys like that as they transition into the NBA. Yes, definitely. Is that something that you had planned or have had thought about or how did this come about? I didn't know. I didn't know. I started looking at what I wanted to do after basketball. I just didn't, um, I just didn't know, uh, it would fall into my lap like that. And I, um, I, it was it was difficult. It was I'm sorry, it wasn't difficult. It just when I when it did fall into my lap, it was uh, I knew it was the right thing for me to do. Even though I felt like I could play for a few more years, basketball was something that I mean, this job was something that I felt like was a higher calling and a purpose for me. And I think, as you said at the beginning, or we were talking about at the beginning, you get to spend spend your time at home. You know, be with your family, see those girls grow up. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of hard to place a value on, too. That's another thing uh, uh, that made it a little easier um, to retire. You know, I, I, my my, uh, my body doesn't take the physical toll that it used to. I don't have to worry. I mean, I, my job still warrants me to travel. Uh, and um, it just makes things a little easier physically for me and emotionally to an extent. But I still miss the game every day. That gives you plenty of time to prep for 20, uh, 2016 and TBT, though. Yes, it does. And every, everybody <laughs> better be ready. Let it be known. City of Gods will be back. Pops, it's been great speaking with you. Hopefully, we'll get a chance to catch up again uh, sometime in the spring when the application period starts. Yeah. Uh, Team City of Gods, Pops Mitsubansu. Thanks again, now, man. We're going to buy it because we made it to the Final Four. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll see. There's always something unique that happens with those teams that, that make it pretty far in TBT. So, we'll see what the uh, future holds for that, okay? Definitely. Please do. look forward to hearing from you. All right. Thanks, Pops. Thank you. Jesse. Hey. Hey, man. Last time we talked, we talked about the West, and this time I want to talk about the South. So tell me about some of the teams that you've been in touch with that might potentially play in the South region. Uh, there's some rumblings of a really interesting um, Virginia team between VCU and Richmond. Oh, that's dear to uh, my heart. That is. <laughs> As a spider. What's the story uh, with that? VCU and, it, it's, uh, and Richmond. It's looking like VCU is going to have four or five guys that played on that uh, Final Four team in 2010, 2011. Um, we're looking at you know Joey Rodriguez and Burgess and some of those guys are going to team up. Is Rodriguez really going to do this? I feel like he's been nipping around the edges of this. I for like two I years. know. There's there's some rumblings that uh that Rodriguez is going to finally jump in after 
after two years. So that VCU team could be one to watch. To play or to coach or what? I, I hear he's going to play. We'll have to see when uh, when awesome. registration opens. See when uh, April first comes. But looks like uh, looks like this VCU team could be really interesting. So it's like a combination of VCU Rams, Richmond Spiders, and then like miscellaneous others from the Richmond area. Yeah, looks like they could have a bunch of A10 guys um, teaming up there. So um, that could be really interesting. Um, we're also looking at the state of North Carolina to produce some some interesting teams. Davidson had uh, Jake Cohen play last year for Liberty Ballers up in Philly, and yep. it looks like. Uh, Jake could team up with some of his other former Wildcats, and uh, they could get a team together um, for Davidson. With Steph Curry playing the point, of course, right? Of course, of course. <laughs> what about uh, uh, what about some of these other schools that um, that are sort of in that North Carolina area? Any ACCs? Yeah, it's looking like uh, that North Carolina has um, some significant interest. I know Bobby Frazier was up in Chicago for the Sweet 16 and Elite Eight. Yeah, I was talking to him um, up there. Uh, in Chicago for that, like I don't remember what game it was. It might have been that Friday game with Notre Dame. Okay, yeah, and he seemed to have you know some significant interest, and we could get those guys back together. You know, um, Jawad Williams and Frazier and all those guys, Sean May, Deion Thompson. I mean, they'd have a a great team. Their '05 championship team uh, put those guys back on a court, and you know maybe have Ray Felton coach them or something. But what about Duke? you know? Duke, uh, we had we had a lot of uh, interesting ties to Duke last year. Quinn Cook, if you remember, came out to Philly, um, and we were kind of joking around that this is before Seth Curry uh, signed with the Kings in the offseason, But we were joking around that you know Quinn and Seth could have the best best backcourt in TBT if they joined forces. Um, so that would be really interesting to see. We'll see what happens with Seth's contract situation in the next few months. But um, and then out in Chicago, actually, Tyler Thornton was there, um, and he's at. I believe he's the GA at Marquette right now. But him and Rashid Suleiman were out there as well. So it seems like there's some rumblings in the Duke community as well, especially uh, in that state of North Carolina, a little tobacco road rivalry with North Carolina and Duke. Because right. like right there, you've got UNC, Duke, Wake Forest, NC State. Got all of them Wake right Forest, there. NC State, you've heard anything about those? Wake Forest, um, we had a few guys play actually um, over the last two years. Anthony Gurley was a transfer from Wake Forest. Um, he was a guy I had at UMass um, a bunch of years ago. And then Chase McFarland played as well in 2014. So Wake Forest has a, a strong strong base to, to build off of. I think they could get it together and compete against UNC and Duke. Do we think Virginia's coming back? Let's, uh, let's call Sammy and ask him. I wonder, uh, I wonder if they're going to... So what's Zygmunski. the story there? You think, what have you heard? I've heard that... Well, originally, um, you know, they had their team together in Philly uh, the first year with Fran McGlynn. Um, all those guys growing up together. Philly and Patriots. The Philly Patriots. And then 2015, Sammy and them went down to Atlanta, Mohamed Dion, Zuzinski, Joe Zuzinski, um, Atkins, and all those guys were on the team. And we'll see if they want to come back. Right now, Sammy says they're in. So uh, we'll see if they go back to the Philly Patriots or if they go back to Team Virginia. It's going to be hard. Like if you went to Virginia and you were to see alumni teams from UNC, Duke, Wake Forest. You'd have to jump in, right? Don't you think? I mean, I would want to play against those guys. And oh, even if of course. You know, I don't know. I just feel like that would be so much fun to kind of relive those, and we, those ACC tournaments. And we can't forget about, you know, the 2014 champs, the ACC now, Notre Dame fighting alumni, um, right. as well as Syracuse as well in the ACC now. So, um, you know, we've had some strong ties to the ACC teams over the last few years as well and expecting to see it grow. Big 12 is a tough one because geographically they're just kind of far from you know where we're likely to be in 2016, right? right? 
of course. I and mean, Oklahoma, Oklahoma. I mean, if James Frischilla put the team together, had like a really good team. They had it, and they lost commitments at the last second. But, I mean, they had the support from the community and the university. Um, everybody was behind it. They got the votes. They had, you know, 10 to 11 guys on their roster. And then they had a buy, too, right? Didn't they have a, they had, they even earn a buy in the they, first they round? They had. They had a first-round buy because of their out, the outpour of fan support. Um, speaking with James, it seems like he'll be able to get it back together. I know Fran is uh, is pushing him as well from, from seeing them play last year. Yeah. That would have been amazing if uh... – Fran if Fran was calling the game with James as the James, coach, yeah. so we think we think James is maybe might be hopping back in. Then we think so. I think it's at this point very likely. What about any SEC? Any movement on the on that conference? Um, Texas A and M um, has a team that's in the works right now. Um, they have a former walk on putting it together, and you know th- these walk ons are great. They have the respect of the players. They can take the initiative. They know what it, it it takes to get get it done. You look at Kieran in the first year with with Notre Dame winning it all. Um, and then, you know, these guys just really have that respect to that, the players and, and can get this team together. That'd be pretty sweet. All right. Uh, so that covers the South so far in terms of the college recruiting that's been going on. Next time we talk, Jesse, maybe we'll talk about the Midwest. Sound good? Sound good. All right. Later, man.